Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Horseport Ireland podcast. I'm John Kyle and each fortnight we'll be bringing you interviews with equestrian experts and of course our Irish athletes. The Horseport Ireland podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts so you can subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you haven't already, check out our previous shows. This week we're going to hear from three very familiar voices on the equestrian circuit. Commentator Paul Nolan, journalist Louise Parks and first of all the king of the Dublin Horse Show Puissance, Brendan McArdle. Brendan, the master of the Dublin Puissance amongst so much else, and that's kind of my question. Between your real job at the Irish Field, commentating, acting as a journalist and a broadcaster, how do you describe your involvement in the sport? I suppose uh, a jack of all trades and master of none could be could be a, a perfect title. I'm I'm very fortunate that I have a great job with the Irish field and there over 16 years and something that I thought was only going to be for a couple of years as a, as a progression within my career uh, that I'd be moving on has turned out to be something that's been there for so long and it's been uh, some wonderful opportunities with the field. And on the rest of the business as in, well I started out with local radio station uh, in up in Monaghan in Northern Sound. They were recruiting at the time looking for budding sports journalists or journalists or presenters and I also fancied myself sort of been in the media end of it. I was competing. Uh, I was fortunate enough that I had a really nice mare that, that we bred, that I took from the young horse classes right up to competing on the Grand Prix circuit. And But I knew that wasn't going to be a, a full-time career for me. It was a pastime and that end of it. But I wanted to be involved in the sport. I studied to be a hotel manager. So part of that course as well, there was a media training and there was other elements of that course that I, I was able to use then for for the particular sport. Then, uh, whenever I was sort of finishing up on the competing end of it, um, Michael Slavin, the great commentator and uh, journalist, sort of said to me, would I be interested in doing it? I said I was. And he gave me a start in Cavan. And that was really the start of it. So I started doing some announcing at shows. I always felt that if we had somebody that was involved in the sport, that was passionate about it, that week in, week out, to try and, try and get it on the airwaves, Northern Sound came IRN, which was a centre distribution area in Dublin for sending out all the sports bulletins all around the country. I got involved with them. And then whenever Michael was leaving RTE, then the opportunity came up for me to get, get in there. And uh, I've been there since he retired. I love the sport. I want everybody to have a great time within the sport. I think we've got, we've got equestrian athletes and horses that are competing week in, week out around the world at the very top level and beating, beating everybody. So it's a sport that needs to be in mainstream media, whether it's in the national press or, and certainly whether it gets on RTE or it gets on some of the other uh, broadcasters, that's where it needs to go. And I think Horseford Ireland have worked really hard over the last number of years to get that out there in the mainstream press and trying to make something off the riders and the horses. Yes, they really have done great work in that regard. And you just like the Irish field, have a little bit of a foot in both camps. You've got quite the involvement in racing. Uh, I do. Uh, I'm lucky that uh, I was... Uh, um, well, if I bring you on, up to date on my racing career end of it, um, I wanted to get into racing, and Dundalk Racetrack would have been my closest one, but it was closed down. And I decided Navin was the next place closest to home. So I rang up and asked to speak to the manager. The manager turned out to be Richard Little, which I knew at the time just briefly from the, from the pony circuit. And um, I asked him, could I come and work for two weeks uh, work placement? And he goes, why would you want to come and work here? I said, well, you're one of the most progressive race tracks in the country because we're actually going to a redevelopment. And I said, uh, you have a great name within the sector. And sure, why wouldn't I take up an, an opportunity to try and go and, and see what happens there? And he goes, when can you start? And I said, lunchtime. And uh, he, he laughed and he said, well, no, tomorrow morning it'll be fine. And uh, so I started the next morning. I ended up there working, uh, hopping and trotting for about 14 months. And as a result of that, I then came the, the marketing uh, manager at Leopardstown. I was filling in a maternity leave there. And then from that, I became the marketing manager at uh, Punchestown. And whenever I was at Punchestown, I was headhunted then to go to the Irish field. And as a result then of me doing the parade ring at Punchestown, then I got the Curra for certain days. I got um, Fairy House. 
and other big days within the within the racing calendar. So that all grew from that end of it, and it sort of works hand in hand with the, with the work that I do in the Irish field and also with some of the work I do with RTE as well. So it's one complements the other. Absolutely. On the one hand, those synergies are great for us as uh, broadcasters or journalists or reporters. And by the same token, a, a breath of knowledge and a little bit of a foot in another camp can give context to what we do in the sport horse industry. As we talk, Brendan, we should all pretty much have been at the Dublin Horse Show. And that I really don't know how you get through the week because you've got so much to do. The bit of commentating and reporting on RTE that people see is literally the tip of the iceberg. But the major event for you is, of course, the Puissance. Tell us about your Dublin Puissance story. I think the first one I did was maybe around 2004, maybe. I remember a changing of the of how the whole competition really worked. I think it was the year Casper won it, uh, Keen O'Connor. So maybe it was a year before that, around 2002 to 2004 is when I, when I started it. And it was, yeah, the crowd just loved this white horse and he was so small and he really got to, got the crowd to start to follow him. But I can remember sitting either in the, in the Anglesey stand or sitting at home uh, actually watching the Puissance. Puissance used to be on the Thursday of the show. Uh, Comet and John Lettingham, Kilcoltrum, Eddie Mackin and Slights or Rye Lyon were other big winners or big jumpers off the wall around that time as well. So I can remember sitting home thinking, this is, the, this is a really, really great class. I can remember I was after doing the commentary around the shows and I was doing the National Grand Prix and we suggested that I should maybe try and get into Dublin to, to be one of the commentators. They came back to tell me, yes, we'd like you to to come, uh, but you'll be starting in Simmons Court. And here was me thinking, oh, I'm doing the National Grand Prix circuit. I think I'm doing a fairly decent job at it. And I'm only going to be going to Simmons Court. That was the mentality I had in my head. But I think it was the best lesson I probably ever learned. Dublin was a different show than any other show. And I started in Simmons Court and I loved Simmons Court because I actually loved the young horses and I loved seeing them coming through. I loved the ponies and the pony riders. And it was a great foundation, a great start to my career with the RDS. And as, after doing a, a year or two in Simmons Court, then I got to go to the main arena to do some of the national classes and maybe one international class on my first year. And then after that, it just grew and it's been very, very good to me. The Puissons in particular, I suppose I looked at it as that was a crowd pleaser and one that, yeah, we, there was always a bit of downtime between each round. What could we do? And it probably just started off with, with the Mexican wave and then it started off with singing or clapping and one side of the house against the other. And it grew over the years. But what used to give me the most pleasure from it, whenever uh, the next morning or the next day on the, on the Sunday, I'd meet people and they'd just say, oh, listen, we had a lovely time last night. It was great. Um, we're not big horsey people, but we really enjoyed it. And I think for that, it was that you were bringing the sport to new people who didn't want to sit looking at 30 or 40 horses jumping round after round, and maybe it was a little bit boring for them, where they could be in their seat for 6 o'clock, they could be finished by 7.30, and they could be sitting at a dinner table anywhere in the Balls Bridge Arena for 8 o'clock, and they were having a great time, or they're bringing their children to it, and they could still be home early. And I think that's what really works in terms of the Puissant. I think we probably put ourselves under a little bit of pressure every year to keep delivering on that. And yeah, the riders are up for the, for the fun of it as well. And we've had some great people that have really participated and sort of pulled a flag out of their boots or took off their jacket and had, had an Irish jersey underneath them. Like, you know, there was just, just some great fun. You don't have to be technical to understand it. You know that the wall keeps going up and whoever jumps the biggest wall wins the competition. Like that would have been one of the classes that I would have really wanted to see this year. That along with the one two eight pony final. That's they're my two they're my two classes that I really, really love to be on in Dublin. Oh, it's fantastic. And when you're a little bit tied up with RTE and I get to start the class, that's an incredible buzz. Right up there with calling the Aga Khan. But Brendan, like I suggested earlier, commentating in the main arena, broadcasting for RTE being supported and accompanied by your family, Sarah and Jack up at the show, plenty of friends, plenty of guests, and so much else besides. I mean, I'm starting to wonder how you even get through the week. You're everywhere doing everything. It sounds, it sounds crazy. Uh, um, well, 
in terms of my Irish field work, that always comes first and foremost. Uh, so we're always really well planned. We've got a stand always in the main hall. Uh, it's very important that we are the industry publication, that we are doing something as well for the sector. So what we've done over the past number of years is we've looked at different pro- different areas of the sector. So say the grooms was uh, one year. We also looked at uh, breeders uh, another year because they're the backbone of the sector. And so we hosted a, a breakfast in the in in the in the local hotel. It's always well attended, and there's always something good comes out of that. So my morning would start probably around five thirty. Uh, there's always a bit of work to be done for Morning Ireland on the first morning or two of the show, and then in the hotel for for about a quarter past six, half six, and uh, make sure everything's set up for breakfast at seven, and that's really rewarding. And then a number of years ago, I I was in Hong Kong for the international race meeting. They do breakfast with the stars. All the jockeys and connections of the big race horse owners all assemble. The guests all get to mingle with the trainers, the owners, the jockeys, and then there's a panel of discussion. Uh, we bring some lucky prize winners from the Irish field, get the opportunity to come and sit with the Aga Khan team on the tours the morning uh, at half eight for, for, for a breakfast. And so they get to sit with one of the riders who are going to be on the Aga Khan team, uh, all of a really nice breakfast. Then we do a bit of an informal chat around and the, the guests can ask any questions they want. And there's a nice group photograph and everybody's gone by 9.30, 10 o'clock and they can go to the show. The riders give this time up free. So that's a really nice function. And it's something that people say to me, well, would you not have 100 people or 200 people in charge in for it? But then, no, that takes away the exclusivity of the, of the event. And that's something that really works for, for us and for them. That's great, and it just underlines what a platform and a shop window Dublin is. Putting Dublin and maybe a little bit to one side, we've sat beside each other in the press seats of plenty of prestigious events around the world, Las Vegas, Arkan. Is the one that stands out for you from all your travels, from all your experiences, maybe a particular result? I went to Arrels when Dermot Lennon became the world champion, and... That was magical. The Scalagots, well, she was bred in County Armagh, so that was just up the road from where I was from. She was by Touchdown, which was a stallion that we had supported and had been very good to me uh, down through my career. That was just one of those great, great moments of being at a championship and getting down to the final four and Dermot just riding brilliantly and winning it. And then the aftermath of that, it was just like a roller coaster for him and the homecoming and other elements of that. But everybody thinks, oh, it's great jumping on a plane and heading off to some of these really exotic, really flash countries. It's not as glamorous as people might think it is, but if you're working in a sport that you really love and you're passionate about, you understand it, you know the people. Yeah, and what fantastic people we are lucky enough to work with. But Brendan, I want to take you back to the Arkan Europeans in 2015. You'd obviously gone there to do a little bit of work. I think you probably had some scheduled reports to send in to RTE. And then we unfortunately just missed out on Olympic qualification. There was an appeal that ran all night long and you were the journalist on the spot. You stuck with that story right through the night. Yeah, that was that's one of the the mad things about the sport but as and whenever you're there and if something is actually happening then you've got to stay with it uh, right to the very end and you don't just wait and to hear a second hand from somebody else because whether it's radio the newspaper or whatever it is they want to know firsthand what it is and have you seen it you heard directly from the people involved and that's where it was that was a, that was a long night but listen that's that's sport and that's news and that's what we're there to do. I think that's a really interesting insight into how our sort of parochial view of how important our sports news is and how it fits into a major news cycle with a broadcaster. And you have that fantastic relationship with RTE that helps get our stories out onto the broadcaster's airwaves. And you were going to be helping further with that because you were to be the man on the ground in Tokyo. Yeah, I was supposed to be heading on Wednesday. I was going to be there for two and a half weeks. was really looking forward to it. And it was a great opportunity to get. Like, I've been to Olympic Games before, but going for the host broadcaster here was uh, just a great opportunity to have three teams going to the Olympic Games, snow jumping, eventing, and dressage, like the first time in its history. The more daunting task for me was that I was possibly going to have to be sent off to other sports for the days that I wouldn't have been covering equestrian sports. So, fingers crossed that something happens and that we all get to uh, Tokyo next year and that we all can be safe and free to travel. 
Yeah, well, I could only echo that sentiment. I'm looking forward to getting out there myself in 12 months' time. Of course, the reason we're not in Tokyo at this very moment is because of the strange times we've all been through. And of course, the Irish field has been through that as well, with no sport horse sport, no racing sport, and yet a paper to come out every week. I know you're not editorial staff there, but I know the team will no doubt have been working incredibly closely together and working incredibly hard to keep the paper full and assumedly all remotely. What's that been like? What's been happening in there? John, the team were remarkable in terms of what they were turning out week in, week out. If anything, we had more stuff and could have filled the, the size of the paper that we were turning out twice every week. But the feedback has been truly immense. Like, like I'm lucky enough that I get to talk to so many people from everybody, different age groups. So it was important for us as a team to give people what they want and also to guide people through difficult times. The editorial was really, really super. And I think a lot, some people who were too busy beforehand to read 130-something pages felt they had the time to read the paper that was coming out every week. So it brought back people to the paper that maybe that just through life had just went away from it and that hadn't the time to read it all together. And it's been really, really positive and encouraging. And we're delighted that it's been going so well but the readers, I think, have certainly given us the biggest tonic uh, with their comments, their emails, and people who just are, are loving the paper. Well, Brendan, that's all fantastic and positive to hear. We look forward, of course, to hearing you at the National Grand Prix circuit this year, at the Puissance in the future, and on RTE from the Tokyo Olympics next year. Thanks so much for speaking with us. My next guest needs very little introduction. You'll have read her byline on equestrianism in the Irish Independent and on most of the industry magazines and journals around the world, as well as being the International Equestrian Federation's go-to author for their press releases. We welcome Louise Parks. Louise, welcome along. Thank you for joining me. Let's start at the start. How did you get into equestrian journalism? I worked at Bordnagopal, which was the uh, original Irish horse board in the 1970s. And while I was there, I became assistant press officer. And that got me into the whole media business. I did quite a lot of press release writing towards the end of my career there. And although I didn't do much writing then for another few years after that, I'd kind of gotten into my stride. Although I even wrote as a child, I used to enter what was known as the Irish Independent Young Journalists uh, competition every year. <laughs> it, I was mad keen to write. Always loved English. Um, it was my favourite subject at school and always enjoyed writing and loved telling a story. So I think that's probably how I got involved in it. And here in Ireland, I very much identify you with the Irish Independent, but of course your byline has appeared everywhere in all the major publications. But how did that transition to being a professional journalist come about? I wrote my first article for the Irish Field in 1982 while I was still at Bordnagopal, and I loved that. I, my very first article was about a one-day event in Boris in County Carlow, and I got a great kick when I saw it being reproduced, and I took it from there. I did quite a bit for uh, the Irish Field over the following few years, but on a sort of only semi-professional basis. Um, I then became a photographer for nearly 10, 12 years and supplemented my income by writing. Uh, and a lot of that was for the Irish field and sometimes for uh, magazines abroad, did a few bits for Horse and Hound. And then in 1992, I had a really nasty accident. My wonderful pony fellow and I were out on a charity ride in Wicklow. And I moved to the side of a pathway to let a little girl go by. And unfortunately, the pathway crumbled and fellow, my lovely pony, and I fell a long distance. He fell on top of me. Uh, he was killed in the fall and I was very badly injured. And as a result of that injury, my eyesight was badly affected. So my photography days were more or less over. Uh, and it kind of coincided with the change in the photography business from film to digital. So in many ways, maybe it suited me. I loved using film. I'm not a digi fan. So I decided I better stick more with the writing. And it was during the early 90s then that a uh, job came up. The job of equestrian correspondent at the Irish Independent came up. 
Uh, by that time, I'd already been in contact to a small extent with the FEI and had done small things for them. Uh, so I started at the Indo maybe early 90s, and I've been heaving along with them ever since. In the early years, used to get massive amount of coverage, but unfortunately these days it's relatively limited as it is in a lot of uh, newspapers. Yeah, that is unfortunately the way. Over that professional career, Louise, clearly there's been a lot of changes. Show jumping is perennially popular. Eventing in this country remains very strong with a great support base. The sport that's maybe had the greatest fill-up in that time is dressage. It is, yes. And dressage has become so popular, I'm delighted to say. I'm enjoying it myself on a very basic level, but I really enjoy the dressage shows. You, you know, we're definitely getting there. And of course, the fact that we've had a, had a string of riders who've had success at the very top level, led by Judy Reynolds in recent years. And of course, Heike Holstein has been there a long time. Uh, that really has helped the profile of that sport. But show jumping, I've been delighted to see this SJI live results system happening for shows at the weekends, which means that for the first time that I can remember, uh, we are, we're actually getting results in time so we can report on what's going on at home. There is a huge enthusiasm for the sport still here in Ireland, but it doesn't have the profile it used to. There were days when I would go to the agricultural shows around the country in the summer and there were thousands of people standing around show jumping rings. That's not something you see anymore. But then the ag shows have been under pressure for a long time. They're still very popular but you just don't have the same scale. Now most of the sport takes place in equestrian centres, so it's limited to people who are interested in equestrianism. So that has a bit of a, an issue. Eventing, there are a large number of events, and since the uh, regulations have, have been eased uh, with regard to the COVID situation in the last few weeks, um, I can't believe the number of people out there. It's massive. It's, it's thriving. It's doing really well. It has its own little audience, but it doesn't have the public appeal, unfortunately, bar Tattersall's, of course, which is a, such a huge success and has been for years. And it's such a shame it didn't happen this year. Uh, bar that, we don't really get much in terms of public attendance at eventing in Ireland. That is an interesting analysis. And I agree. I think the somewhat demise of the agricultural shows from where they were 20, 30 years ago is losing us a shop window for, in particular, of course, show jumping. Louise, as you mentioned there, you are doing a little bit of dressage these days with the famous Joey Pony, who also does some trek with you. Tell us a little bit about your life in the saddle. I, I live about 25 kilometres, perhaps, from where I was born. I, I was born and reared in Dublin, and all of my horse experience was uh, based around the Dublin area. I was a pony-mad child, just like so many others, a pony mad child who didn't have a pony of her own, so would ride absolutely anything I could get uh, sit on. And uh, when I was a very small child, my um, the local butcher gave me a pony to ride, and that I did lots. I did years of hunting with him, uh, a terrible attempts at show jumping because he wasn't that keen on it. But I adored him, absolutely adored him, and that really got me going. I was just one of those kind of, you know, I I read every Jill pony book could not wait to get out there. My father was a horseman. I obviously inherited that gene, which he got from his father and his grandfather. And it's been in the genes for a very long time. Well, those genes have definitely been passed on if it comes to love of equestrianism and horse sport. We see that in your writing, Louise. And in those years, were you based with any trainers, riding schools or yards? I rode at Sally Ann Tobin's uh, family's riding uh, centre actually up which was located between Temple Oak and Tala. I used to go for lessons up there they were the only lessons I ever had I think I had about 10 lessons when I was about 14 <laughs> and uh, until then I'd never had a lesson in my life and um, yeah I, I was very much around in the tail end of the Mespel Road uh, Iris Kellett era and a lot of Iris in Kill itself and they were great times really great times I never lost my enthusiasm for the riding and I, I used to work during the summer to make enough money to get riding lessons in my teens. And uh, eventually I did go to lessons in Kill and I had some, fr I used to ride a little bit out in uh, Jane Kennedy's in Bray. Used to love going there because when I joined Borden Goppel, uh, I at that stage was in the, in the riding club and 
one of our great adventures used to be go, to go out to Jane Kennedy's in Bray and have a nice gallop around the countryside out there. Love that. Love that. Between leaving school and um, going to Bordnagopal, which I think I joined Bordnagopal when I was about nearly 20, uh, I had a couple of jobs in the horse business, but I was mainly grooming, doing very little riding, had a bad fall. And it was the bad fall, actually, that got me into Bordnagopal because I had to stop the job I was doing at the time because I cracked my pelvis. And I walked from my home in Clondalkin up to Tala on a pair of crutches, dropped the crutches at the gate, walked the rest of the way up the driveway and into my interview. And I got it. Got the job. Delighted with myself. (laughs) So I think in the rest of the world, you'll be very familiar to people as often the on-site journalist and in particular the writer of so many of those press releases at critical moments of our sport for the International Equestrian Federation. And what, as I know you and I I know your style, comes through every so often is just that little Irish twinkle. Yeah, I I don't overplay it. I only uh, I, I I don't think I do anyway. But I think it's it it's what allows me to see the the enjoyment and the the delight people get out of horses in the way that we do here in Ireland. In some in some circumstances, the relationship between horses and riders and the people in the sport can be a little bit clinical. But I think we're very good at keeping the life and soul of the party going when it comes to equestrian sport here in Ireland. We have that little bit of you know, an extra edge to the, I don't know, the personality end of it. And I I love exploring the personalities of the people in the sport. And I love doing my press conferences and things where you get to find that some people who you thought were very severe or or shy or, or uncommunicative suddenly become really talkative and just really interesting in a way that you wouldn't find otherwise. I've been very fortunate to meet so many fantastic people at the very top of the sport and uh, to have been there on some of the most exciting days of sport during my era. I think the FEI allows me to express myself as much as I can. I don't try not to overstep the mark where it comes to Irishness, but you can't help having a little bit more interest in your own country when it comes to the big occasions. But at the same time, you still celebrate whoever wins, regardless of who it is. But on that basis, then, having the opportunity to write the press releases from Ireland's victory at the Longines FEI Jumping Nations Cup finals in Barcelona last year must have been really quite something. Oh, it was great fun. Great fun. And what a day. Uh, the, the, the utter desperation of it, in a way, was what made it such a great story because the Irish had their backs to the wall. They really wanted to get to the Olympics and winning the Nations Cup final was the icing on the cake. And then, like, the, the pure joy of it afterwards, having realising that they'd also qualified for Tokyo. Tokyo, indeed. And you, like me, we should have been there almost as we're speaking, Louise. How many Olympics would this have been in your career? Uh, this would have been my sixth. I've done everything from since Atlanta except Sydney. The Indo actually sent me to Atlanta, which I was delighted about. I, was, I think I was only working for them a year at the time. I had a, a wonderful time in Atlanta. And at those games, working either for a major national newspaper or for an international sports federation, did you get to see and experience much more of the Olympic Games? Well, do you know, I've really only ever been totally uh, taken by equestrianism at the Olympics. A lot of the time, of course, you're kind of too far away from what's happening elsewhere to, to really get terribly involved in, in, oh no, that's not quite true now because in Atlanta, I got to see Sonia O'Sullivan running. I forgot that. And that was very close to the time of the famous uh, bombing incident that Michael Slavin reported on. Uh, so yeah, that, that was quite exciting. But in general, I tend to, I tend to just really concentrate all my energies into the equestrian end of things but there isn't there something really special it doesn't really matter if you're at the events when you're at an olympic games just being part of that whole olympic moment is it's a wonderful experience there is a great family feel about it because everybody who's there is very privileged to be there and you're part of a piece of history it's lovely yeah i know exactly what you mean and out of those games louise is there one that stands out for any reason nothing can compare to london for me I just had the most extraordinary experience in London. But maybe there's a comfort zone involved there too. But I I so enjoyed those games. There was so much to celebrate about it. I was very lucky. 
I got myself an Airbnb apartment on the river. And I used to go, I got it, went into the city in the evenings by using a riverboat. And I absolutely loved doing that to meet friends and things. I just loved the whole atmosphere of London. And there was a a different kind of excitement about it. I loved Greenwich Park was fantastic. Of course, the weather was wonderful. And um, yeah, just just it to me, that was the most special one I've been to. It was an incredible two weeks. And of course, it's the city I live in now. It was the first Olympics I commentated at. So for me as well, it's going to be very, very difficult to ever beat. It's interesting that you say, though, comfort zone, because we're aware of you. We see you all over the world, asking the difficult questions, building relationships with organisers and great friends in the press industry at shows everywhere. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I love going. I love my, my travelling and my, my shows that I've... And I love going to the States. I enjoy America very much. In the early days in Bordnagopal, I was involved with a lot of American people who are coming to buy horses. And when later in my career, I, I worked alongside with my journalism and photography, I was working for the other version of the Irish Horse Board, the one that just looked after the breeding end of things. And they used to, I used to work for them uh, representing Ireland and the Horse Board at various shows across America. And I made lots of great friends during that period of my career as well. Really enjoyed doing that. So I could be at those events and write about them for the Irish Field or the Irish Independent or whoever I was working for and also promote the sale of the Irish horse. That was lovely. But yeah, I've great friends uh, across the world. I'm very lucky. I think any of us involved in the sport eventually form great relationships with people in various places. And I love the fact that I can ring people up in any country. There's always somebody who's more than willing to help you if you've got an inquiry or you're looking for some advice or whatever. Just great people involved in the business, in the in the media business, and great people involved in the sport. And the cooperation I've had from people for this latest FEI Talking Horses series has been stunning. It's been staggering. Um, people have been so helpful and so enthusiastic because I think what is an important element of any writer's sort of obligation is to kind of celebrate what we do. And that's what I've concentrated on doing in this particular series over the last few months, while there has been little or no activity on the equestrian front. And that's, it's been a great experience for me. I've really enjoyed it. And lots of my good friends have helped me to do it. Yeah, it's been a lovely series and, and one I've particularly enjoyed reading. So Louise, it turns out that in the media industry, you are yet another multi-talent. You write, you broadcast, you commentate. And as we heard, you were a photographer at a professional level for quite some time. What do you enjoy the most? I mean, do you miss the photography, for instance? Um, I do miss photography, but I absolutely love writing and I love I love watching competitions, watch the drama unfold and try and turn that into a story that people will be interested to read and excited to read. And I love seeing new combinations coming along and making an impression and maybe surprising some of the more experienced people as they arrive on the scene. And then, of course, there are the great heroes that every time they come into the ring, you just love watching them. So uh, that that's really the greatest satisfaction for me. And I, I love I, I, I do enjoy deadlines just as well <laughs> because I'm, I'm a bit of a brinksmanship person. I leave everything till the very last second and uh, then have to really hammer out the story. But if I'm not under that kind of pressure, I probably don't write at my best anyway. So it suits me. I think there's something in the creative mind, isn't there, that just thrives off deadlines like that. Louise, you have, of course, been lucky enough to talk to all of the top riders probably in our sport over the last number of years. But also through various relationships, Longines and the FEI, you've been able to speak to household name superstars. One in particular in my mind is Steffi Graf. What was that like? Um, Steffi was just was extraordinary. I, I, was, I find myself sometimes in slight awe of the people I'm interviewing. I, I'm so uh, gobsmacked by what they've achieved in their own careers that, you know, you get slightly starstruck. And I was a tiny bit with her. But the moment I asked a question and she responded, I realised just what a lovely person she is. She, I was interviewing her together with Ludger Beerbaum, and of course I know Ludger quite well, but Steffi was just so gracious and so lovely. 
um, although apparently had a very prickly relationship with the media at the top of her career. But I, I found her really gracious and really lovely. And it's such a privilege to um, interview somebody who has achieved as much as she has and is such a household name. And what about our riders who are, I mean, equally successful as Steffi in their own way, like Ludger Beerbaum, Isabel Wert? Does the horse create the connection that makes that easier for you? Or do you sometimes have the same sense of awe at a rider that has achieved so much? Um, well, sometimes with with both Ludger and Isabel, funny enough, uh, they would have been people that I was a little bit uh, fearful of, of interviewing because I'd known about them for such a long time and they had, you know, slightly Germanic attitude to their conversations and I thought that was going to make it very scary. But you can't get anybody warmer than Isabel um, as long as, of course, she's on a good day, as she would say herself. <laughs> Ludger's just your ultimate professional and has always put me at ease. I'll tell you one person who I've never been able to interview terribly well uh, is Mark Todd. And that is completely my failing. Again, completely overawed by the man. <laughs> I just think he is the most amazing horseman. He just leaves you in awe. And when you're in awe of somebody, it can be a little bit, make you a little bit tongue-tied. That's really interesting. Mm. John Whitaker now. Um, everybody, uh, so many people say that uh, they, they find it difficult interviewing the Whitakers. I have no, no problem at all. I adore them. But maybe they know I adore them. <laughs> and um, that, that might help. They're just great. And, uh, you know, I've had some fantastic interviews with them and conversations with them. And John was brilliant. I did an interview with him in um, Verona about, oh, gosh, it must be six years ago, maybe now. And uh, he was just hysterically funny. Yeah, I, I find them great. They have lots to say. It's just they have it. They do it the Whitaker way, you know. <laughs> they do. They do. Louise, if we were going to sort of sum it up, I think you've given us some very clear ideas of what foundation people maybe need, which is a love of English and a love of writing. But what comes through very clearly listening to you talk here today, knowing you talking to you at events and, and reading your articles and releases is that that's all underlined with a great love of the sport. And it seems to me that you probably can't expect enormous success in equestrian journalism without a genuine love of the sport. I don't think so. And you certainly have to love horses. I mean, that's where it all really starts. If you don't have that kind of to use the dreadful word passion, if you don't have that intensity of feeling for the animals, then you're probably going to struggle to report on the sport because it's the effort those animals, regardless of their of their sort of uh, ability levels, the, the, the effort the, the, that they make on behalf of the riders and how well the riders use the ability of that horse, that's the real challenge of what you're looking at. You see some people and... They may not be the most talented riders, but you, you you watch this horse, this wonderful, wonderful creature carrying them around because it's willing to do so and wants to do its best for them. And that, to me, is the delight of it all, really. It's the combination of horse and rider and, and the relationship they have, the, the, the beauty of watching them. When I, was, when I was researching the David Broom piece, now there was one of the highlights of my career in the last few weeks interviewing David Broom. I, I mean, I've hero-worshipped him all of my life. And I had a lovely couple of hours speaking with him on the phone. And I have to say, he was just a delight, and he's such a great storyteller. But anyway, in the course of uh, putting my piece together for the FEI on that, I was uh, trawling through some photographs, and I came across this stunning photograph of him at Aachen, the year that he was on, I think it was 1978, the winning world championship team riding Philco. You have never in your life seen a more perfect horse and rider combination in midair over a fence. And the whole thing, just a picture of harmony between the horse and the rider that it's breathtaking. And that's why I love the sport. That's what I love it for and what I wait to see. And when I see that, the enjoyment I get out of that and the the thrill of it is just enormous. Louise, thanks so much for talking to us today. It's been super. And my final guest is the perennial mine of information on any of our equestrian disciplines, be it written as a commentator or as a broadcaster. Paul Nolan. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for talking to us. Could you start by telling me a little bit about 
your relationship, your history with horses? In the 1970s, I started in the Grand Hotel Indoor Arena in Malahide, where the Irish Horse of the Year show was hosted. And it was a fantastic venue and a great atmosphere. And all the top riders used to turn up there. And that's where I started my horse riding many years ago under Marie Archer Murphy, who, who was my first instructor. And uh, I, I progressed from ponies to horses fairly quickly. She was she was fairly enthusiastic about show jumping. And that's really where it all started, show jumping. And then like many, many children out of Dublin, Iris Kellett had moved from Mespel Road to Kill. And myself, my sister were sent down and under the late Madeleine Byrne and Mary Darcy. And I remember helping out Paul Lindsay with his lesson. We were trained down there as well. And that actually is where I was first introduced to dressage. Dressage was something that really wasn't spoken about in Ireland in those days. But there was a lot of television coverage for equestrian sports on the BBC at that stage. In 1978, in Goodwood, the World Dressage Championships were held. And Jenny Lauriston-Clark won an individual bronze medal. And that got quite a bit of TV coverage. And that was, I'd say, a an introduction for a lot of people to dressage at that point. After that, I was fortunate enough to be trained by Jackie Doherty, Fiona Wentges. I was also under the very BDI of great uh, Sheila Casti, her daughter Nicola, Gwen Kinsler. And then by chance, I ended up uh, being asked to go out to exercise horses for Janet Murray. And I've been exercising her horses for the last uh, 34 years. During that time, I, I did some eventing and show jumping and and dressage um i'll be honest i was i was a pretty average rider the only compliment madeline byrne ever paid to me was when she put me on the bullhorn for one of her wednesday shows down in kill and said i sounded nice i've had really wonderful opportunities from different people i mean janet has had so many great horses through her yard both adventures and show jumpers from her background and the opportunities to sit up on those philippa marks uh, a few years ago very kindly invited me out to ride chile uh, as a five-year-old and uh, of course he won the six-year-old championship in Dublin the following year under lights and has since gone on to compete internationally for Kevin Babington and Jonathan Corrigan so for a commentator like me to get the opportunity to sit up on what I call the Rolls Royce and the Jaguars and the Ferraris of this world just to get a feel of them is is a real privilege and it gives me a great insight when when I pick up the microphone. Oh wow there's no doubt you've got more to say if you've ever sat in a saddle but to have ridden some of the horses at these levels. That's amazing. But alongside a lot of this riding, you have been gainfully employed. You've had real jobs. I went down for the, the standard interview with Pamur O'Farrell back in 1980 for what was then the Irish Certificate in Equitation Science. And she said, Paul, you need to go and get a real job and earn some money. So that's exactly what I did. I, I was in business for, for nearly 40 years working for different uh, companies. Uh, in the insurance business, both here in Ireland, an American multinational and a UK multinational. So uh, that was that was great experience. And then off the back of that, I, I managed to maintain my interest in the equestrian world. And then I was given various opportunities to go into the areas of commentary and journalism, which was uh, a real bonus. Yeah, there's no doubt that embarking on a career like ours is quite a scary proposition and to have a few years where your job maybe has the flexibility and the capacity to let you develop your portfolio and your career as a commentator or a journalist is very, very useful. But the balance must have started tipping at one stage because whilst you were still fully employed, you then also were in a position to be able to come for two weeks to the World Equestrian Games in Lexington, Kentucky back in 2010. So how did that sort of balance start to shift? Yeah, so there were two aspects to it. The first was on the commentary side. The old spring show was where I was literally thrown in the deep end because I got a request very late in the day to go to the spring show to help out. And in those days, they used to divide the main arena into three. And down at the Anglesey Road end was where the dressage was being held. And I turned up with a calculator and a pen because I was asked to go to do the scoring. And David Lee, who many people know as an international eventing judge, was there as a technician uh, standing by the hut that they put in the main arena talking to him and he said to David who's the commentator and he pointed at me and said he is and that was about five or six minutes before the class was due to start so I was handed the microphone there and then 
And then they came to me and said, would I come and do the horse show? And I said, well, I'm not prepared to do the scoring. And they said, don't worry about the scoring. We'll get someone else to do that. I did the National Dressage Championships for them. And I was very fortunate that after that came the National Carriage Driving Championship. And then Gwen Kinsley came to me the year after that and said, look, there's any chance you could do our one-day event we're running here for Eventing Ireland. So I started doing eventing. So that had all happened in a period of about three years. And from there, I got a request a few years after that to go to Maureen Bagnell's South County Dublin show, which in those days was just before the horse show and it used to run on a Saturday and a Sunday. But the thing about it was that there was a, a bonus of 25,000 Irish punts for a winner of the South County Dublin Grand Prix. And if you went to Dunleary the next day and you won that, you got the bonus. And there was a really good entry that day. Eddie Macken was competing. Michael Whittaker was there competing in the class. It was a top class entry. They were happy enough with what I did and uh, they asked me back. And I had a great association then with Maureen Bagnell for, for, for many years after that. And then the following year, Gronje Willis contacted me because I'd been asked to do some public relations work for uh, Dressage Ireland. I went away and did a certificate of public relations exam to get the experience. And then I got in contact with the Equestrian Federation of Ireland. Ned Campion had come in as Secretary General. Colin McClelland been appointed their press officer. And he was extremely helpful. And he's been a mentor, as has Louise Parks, Louise Garland, as I used to know her, because we competed against each other 40 years ago. And that was a great help. So through that, Gronje then contacted me shortly before Christmas 1999 and said to me, look, um, I'm looking for a dressage review. And I said, innocently enough to her, is, is that a dressage review of the year, Gronje? And she said, no, 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 Paul, this will be a dressage review of the millennium. And she needed it within three days. So that was pretty challenging, but I managed to track down Patience Bennett, who uh, competed in the uh, pre-St. George in the White City in 1948, 49 and 50. She originally rode a horse called Seenim for Colonel Joe Hugh Dudgeon, but she eventually selected a horse called Seaforth. And she won in 1948. She was second in 49. In 1950, the class was preceded by a thunderstorm. It was a sea of mud. She skidded past the E marker by six yards, such was the conditions, and went on her honeymoon thereafter because she came second to find out Colonel Judge and Ranger to say, look, the German Colonel Brockner has been disqualified and you're the winner. And that gave a great uh, entree into the, the article in terms of uh, things that people weren't aware of. And then I was able to, to go through all of the other achievements of dressage. And there was a great headline on it, uh, Rough and Rocky Road to Achieving a State of Grace, published on the 1st of January 2000 by Gronje. And from there, I became dressage correspondent for the Irish Field for the next 10 years. And that's how I ended up in Lexington. Well, I think that answer, Paul, might prove the relevance of my next question. I always feel that you and whenever we're talking to each other at a show or what have you, you have an amazing grasp of, of facts and figures and details and names. I mean, accuracy seems to be like a byword for you. Well, I think that it's so important to research. Dorian Williams wrote a book many years ago, and he was one of the main commentators for the BBC, along with Raymond Brooks Ward in the days before the late Mike Tucker, he explained that he was sent to a show many years ago by the BBC and they went live expecting to see show jumping. And he spent the first half an hour commentating on a hackney class that hadn't finished because everything was running so late. But he always had a ratio of you need to do enough research for four hours for every one hour that you're on air. So that is a good guiding principle. You also need to have people outside of the arena who are people that you respect, who are listening to what you are saying and doing. And I'm very fortunate. My sister is probably my biggest critic. And Louise Parks is, is one who will certainly text me in the middle of a competition and let me know if something is not going well. Um, Mags Duncan, who's one of our, our great starters, and Philippa Marks as well. This is, is really good because it, it makes you improve all of the time and you need to be doing your research. If you don't do your research, you will be found out. And as you and I both know, John, we may be asked to fill in at short notice. So you need to have something to say that makes sense. And that is the reason why anybody who's interested in getting involved in commentary work, I would urge them to research before 
they pick up a microphone. That's very sound advice. I, I couldn't agree more. So, Paul, commentating, announcing all the various disciplines, writing, interviewing, broadcasting, what out of that whole gamut of things is your absolute favourite? I like variety, John, and I have been very fortunate, as I've outlined earlier. I mean, I've done the National Dresshouse Championships, the National Carriage Driving Championships, the National Eventing Championships, the National Show Jumping Championships. I've done the Supreme Hunter Championship in Dublin, racehorse to riding horse classes in Balmoral, five-star international dressage out in Qatar. I have been so fortunate, and I like that variety. In terms of writing to a deadline, I do like an exciting class where there is a deadline. And uh, certainly when I was in Windsor, where two world records were broken in a matter of 20 minutes in the um, European Championships in the Grand Prix Special by Totalis and Parseval. That was a Friday afternoon with deadlines looming. And originally it was 100 words and then it was 250 words. And eventually I ended up with a front page article because it was so exciting. That was was really thrilling stuff. I don't mind being asked to do interviews at the, at the last moment. You need to be ready with some questions. That that is important, and and it's it's also something that you can you can work on the template of what other people have done. Charles Pole, who who originally took a radio mic and went out into the Supreme Hunter Championship in Dublin, was considered something of a revolutionary, believe it or not, in those days. But uh, he stuck at it and he handed over a template to myself and Bernard Condren, who do it now. We're very much under time pressures, but we have worked as a team now in order to deliver what what the people who are involved in the All-Ireland for showing, that's the Supreme Hunter Championship for them, and also to fit it into that programme that ends up with the marvellous puissance that has been revolutionised by people like Declan King and Brendan McArdle, who've done a superb job in making that an evening of not only top-class sport, but real entertainment uh, for always a packed house. So, you know, Saturday at the Dublin Horse Show is, is a special day and it's it's great to have people working as a team there and, and raising the bar. That's what it's all about. It is a superb day, as you say, at the show from the Hunters on through to the Puissants. And Paul, you and I have a little bit of a shared history uh, at the Horse Show. At the moment, we commentate together on the Grand Prix on the Sunday afternoon. But many years ago, we started... Uh, taking over from Michael Slaven in the broadcasting box, delivering continuity to the whole RDS. Now, when I was there, it was a little wooden hut with a lady who came and brought tea and biscuits if you were very lucky. But now you've been translated into a space-age CCTV-equipped control room. But just tell us a little bit about that job and that role. Well, it, that all happened by chance because what happened there was Michael was working in Atlanta and rang Brian Reed and, and said, Brian, look, I won't be able to do this job of continuity for you. That's how it ended up. And then a, a young teenager called John Kyle turned up to say he'd be doing the other five hours a day because it was a 10 hour gig. And uh, it worked out well because it gave you the opportunity to go right around the showgrounds and take in everything and speak to everyone in terms it didn't make any difference whether you're the person doing selling the antiques and the old books in the uh, Serpentine Hall or whether you were somebody out in Simmons Court or in the main arena. All of these things, all the entertainment, the ladies' day, everything needed to be referenced and it needed to be done in such a way that you were directing people where they needed to go at a certain time. So, for example, if somebody was doing an interview with a top personality in the main arena, we'd tee it up 10 minutes in advance, say people, okay, that's going to be happening, giving them the opportunity. Because remember, it's people there with families and letting them know what's going on. So it's, it's, it's very important for people who go to the show so that they know what's going on. Because as you know yourself, it's, it's a large showgrounds and there's a lot going on in all the different arenas. So to have that continuity, originally, as we know, the old broadcasting box has now been retired and we've since moved to a much better location with uh, closed circuit television. Uh, so it gives us really a great feel for what is happening, when it's happening, so that we can give real-time information to people. And that's what they expect. It is such an important role and I can still remember the meeting point of the showgrounds is located underneath the main clock tower. But as I mentioned, we also have our Sunday afternoon appointment for the Longines Grand Prix of Ireland, Paul, and that is an amazing class. Tell me how you originally got onto that one. That happened by chance. I was uh, at the Tattersalls Grand Prix show in July a few years ago, and it actually was Brendan McArdle's birthday. 
and I, as people were walking the course, I reminded him of the, of the fact that it was his birthday. I was a bit mischievous. And uh, after the Grand Prix ended, I noticed he was standing outside the door. So I thought I was going to get a bit of a telling off. But in fact, he came over to me and he said, look, is there any chance you could do the Grand Prix in Dublin next week? Is, is, is that OK? And I said, look, if you, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. And uh, it started from there. And uh, I've, I've been very fortunate because if you look at the, the history of the Grand Prix, there were there were many, many years when people like John Wiley were doing it. Diana Connolly, Carew and Barrymore won it in 66. And the next Irish winner wasn't until 1986, which was then Commandant Jerry Mullins with Rock Barton. And that's a long period of time to not have an Irish winner. I have been fortunate during the time that I've done it that we've had some really thrilling contests. I mean, Keno Connor has, has, has won it for Ireland. Bertram Allen has won it for Ireland during that period as well. And of course, you and I last year, when it was the richest ever Grand Prix and Shane Breen steps up and, and wins it. That, would, that, was, that was a great day. So I've thoroughly enjoyed doing that. It's been great variety and it's, it's really a top class for show jumpers because it's one of the big classes of the year and that they're all interested in doing well. And we saw, for example, Susan Fitzpatrick, she came into the arena. She actually had the fastest time in the jump off, but she just had a back bar of an oxer down. But that was that was really outstanding performance. And, and it's something like that unexpected where you see somebody coming through real talent and it, it makes your day just to see that. And particularly when it's an Irish rider on, on home soil, it's absolutely outstanding. You can't beat it. Any Irish win at Dublin is electrifying. And like you say, with so many years when we were being denied a Grand Prix winner, it definitely was playing a, a big second fiddle to the Nations Cup, the Aga Khan. And those recent run of successes have really been fantastic. Again, like all of my guests this episode, Paul, you've been around the world. You've seen some amazing competitions play out. What sticks in your mind, though? Is it a competition you've commentated on or is it an experience? I mean, I know for me, I've been incredibly lucky and I've seen some amazing stuff. But actually, sitting as an audience member, watching Totilas and the other 14 dressage horses under the lights in the World Championships freestyle at Lexington in 2010 that we talked about earlier on, that just will always be in my mind. I've been fortunate in that I've had opportunities that other people don't get. So uh, just referring to that night where people were paying $1,000 a ticket, as you well know, John, for that night because of Totos. Now, he wasn't actually on his on his very best that night. I thought he, he was he was really superb when he broke the world record in uh, Olympia. He, he was really great there. But the night before that, uh, Louise and myself were sharing a car and she was working late. So I went in uh, to the main arena in uh, Lexington and under lights, they were all practicing. There were about 50 people there, no more than that, most of them grooms. And all the greatest combinations in the world were under lights practicing that night and um, their freestyle programs. And I was there for two or three hours watching them. And it was almost surreal to see all of these wonderful combinations out preparing for a world championships, including Totalus. And it really was a magical evening. I don't think there's any way you can you could describe it otherwise for the atmosphere and the crowds. And there's something special about being under lights. It's an extra dimension for the horses and riders because of shadows and, and the like in terms of the potential for spooking. But it really was a wonderful showcase. There's no doubt that those two nights, the preview that you got to see in the actual competition night, did the world of dressage, let alone dressage in the United States, a world of good. And finally, Paul, favourite show. And I'm not going to let you say the RDS. I'm not even going to let you say a show in Ireland. What show really has stood out for you on the international scene? Oh, the, my favourite show? That's an easy one. Olympia. The Olympia International Horse Show at Christmas is magical. And the organisation of that show is truly outstanding. And whether you want to go there for Christmas spirit, if you want to wander off down through Kensington, through Knightsbridge, go down to Harrods, whatever you want to do, whether you want the retail therapy, because boy, is there some retail therapy available in that uh, grand hall, or whether you want to enjoy top class show jumping 
you want to enjoy top class dressage. The, the gala night there for the dressage is just one to experience. And all the other entertainment, the closing act with Father Christmas, the Shetland ponies and the jockeys coming in and competing against each other. There are so many top classes there and, and such a wonderful organization and great tradition and the, the, the date and the timing of it. Uh, it's it's a truly outstanding show. And if anyone has not had the opportunity to go there, I would strongly recommend it. Well, I could easily agree with that. It actually is where I currently live, my local horse show. Paul, you've mentioned so many times luck or fortune. I think when we go back to your commitment to accuracy and research and your professionalism in this, it's very clear that you've made your own luck. Congratulations on all your success. And I look forward to working with you again in the very near future. Thanks so much. Well, no surprise when one commentator talks to three others that we end up with one of our longest episodes. But I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit more about the background and the passion of the people who present our sport. My thanks to Brendan McArdle, Louise Parks and Paul Nope. Don't forget, as ever, a huge amount of advice and information on the HSI website at horsesportireland.ie. Remember, the sport and breeding departments at Horsesport Ireland, whilst working remotely, are still open and able to help with any renewals or registrations required. And there continues to be news and updates on the current COVID-19 guidance and details of the financial support available. So thanks for joining me, John Kyle, and I look forward to talking to you again on the next Horse Sport Ireland podcast.